we need our farming systems that are regenerative, uh, not just simply sustainable. We need to regenerate our landscape, and, and that needs to be applied all over the planet. This is the Ruminant Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr. TheRuminant.ca is a website devoted to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. At the site, you can find back episodes of this podcast, as well as other stuff. Essays I've written, photo-based submissions from listeners, book reviews, that sort of thing. I hope you'll check it out. TheRuminant.ca. You can email me, editor at TheRuminant.ca, and I'm on Twitter, at RuminantBlog. Okay, let's do a show. Hey, everyone. It's going to be a short intro again, as I just don't have a lot of time to uh, to record these things now that we're into uh, the full-on farming season. Last week, I asked you to consider writing me, to let me know what you think of the podcast, good or bad. I, I mentioned that uh, I, don't, I don't get a lot of feedback, and it's really nice to receive. And a few of you did write emails to me, and they were really nice. I really appreciated getting them. So uh, to the rest of you, please consider writing in. Let me know what you think. Don't forget that I would love to hear your own ideas, advice, tips, that sort of thing that you have for other farmers. I'd love to record it. We could do it uh, over the phone or Skype or whatever. So if you want to do that, you can text me at 250-767-6636 to let me know that you want to do that. You can record your idea at the Skype number, 310-734-8426. You can email me or get me on Twitter and uh, just let me know that you want to uh, record something. It doesn't take long. And the the whole idea is that, uh, well, if you were at a conference and you were going to get up on stage and just share one simple idea with with your colleagues, what would it be? What are you doing that you're proud of? Um, I'd love to do some more episodes with listener submissions, so please consider uh, submitting or, or like I said, just just send me some feedback. What do you what do you like what do you, what do you like about the show and what do you think I could be doing better? I'd love to receive them. Okay, so today the episode features my conversation with Colin Sace. Colin was a guest at Permaculture Voices Two conference in San Diego this year, and I was blown away by his presentation. Uh, he's been farming for decades, and over the last two or three decades, he has developed a very innovative system of what he calls pasture cropping. Colin farms on thousands of acres on his farm in Australia and through a fairly complex rotation of various crops, native grasses, and his 3,000 sheep, Colin has developed a system that is regenerative. He has seen his soils um, vastly increase their their productive capacity uh, over the years and this is all done without irrigation. I'm going to leave it at that. Colin goes into it uh, in detail with me in our conversation, but it's a really, really impressive what he's done, really inspiring. And uh, we talk a little bit about how some of his techniques could be applied in uh, other contexts, like the North American context. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, coming up on the Ruminant, like at the website, the ruminant.ca, I did have a submission this week, a really cool one. I had a listener who submitted a do-it-yourself plan for making your own um oh what are they called like a plate seeder uh, a vacuum-based plate seeder that allows you to to seed uh seedling trays really really quickly with the use of um, vacuum suction and a plate with uh, small holes to to hold uh, a whole tray's worth of seeds at once god that i just butchered the description but anyway i'll be putting that up uh soon i may even invite 
uh, this gentleman on the uh, show really briefly to talk about his um, his adaptation of what is otherwise a very very expensive piece of equipment. So stay tuned for that, and I hope you like this conversation with Colin Sace. Here's his bio. My name is Colin Sice. Um, I live in, I guess, eastern Australia or southeastern Australia, which is about 200 miles northwest of Sydney. Um, I farm uh, 2,000 acres here. Um, that's mixed farming, I guess, what you would call, call farming and ranching. Um, and run merino sheep, about 4,000 merino sheep, and grow crops on about 500 acres or a quarter of that. Um, the crops we grow are, uh, are mostly cereal crops, wheat, oats, barley, those those types of crops. Colin Sice, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Yep, thank you. Colin, I caught your workshop or one of your workshops that you gave at Permaculture Voices 2 conference in San Diego, and I, I just found it fascinating Essentially, you summed up how over a number of years, you and the people you farm with have come up with a very innovative system for no bare soil farming. Um, I I hesitate to simply call it pasture cropping because it's a lot more complicated than that. And so today I'd like to ask you to to take us through your systems and then speculate on how other people might might mimic some of the systems you use in in other parts of the world. Uh, So anyway, thanks. I'm really I'm really glad to have you here today. Okay, thank you. I guess to explain about pasture cropping, probably need to go back to the reason why I, I, I changed and why I, I was looking or searching for a, a different way to, to grow crops and to plant crops. Um, I grew up in uh, uh, um, conventional agriculture, like at, uh, or traditional agriculture, um, I've been on this farm here, or my family have been on this farm here since the 1860s. Um, my great-grandfather started the, the farm here. And so, and then my father started, I guess you would call it industrial agriculture in the 1930s of, of ploughing soil and, and, and then eventually putting fertilisers and then uh, in the 1950s, pesticides, insecticides, all of that that goes along with the, the Green Revolution that, that uh, was started after the Second World War. Uh, so I grew up in that type of agriculture, and um, even though it was it was crashing and, and failing on my father, uh, eventually mostly because of crop diseases and insect attack and and poor crop yields, I did adopt early days. I did adopt that type of agriculture, and it failed with me as well. I then changed to what. Uh, uh, you would call now uh, zero-till, but zero-till with all of the inputs, like full herbicide application and, and pesticides and, and insecticides. Um, and that failed on me also. That, that was in the 1980s I was doing that, that type of zero-tilling. Uh, and and it, it was a failure as well. We were getting more and more compacted soil and, and bare ground, and and it just simply... It just, it just crashed on me. It just wasn't going to work. So then I started to search for another way of doing things. In the meantime, I, in the 1979, I actually I had a, a major fire, bushfire or a wildfire, you, you would call it, 
here which burnt everything on this on, on our two thousand acre farm, including uh, all of the buildings and almost all of our sheep. About three thousand sheep were killed. So I look, I was looking or searching for a a low input uh, method of farming. Like I actually had to look at a no input method of farming because I had no money at all, and it was and it was a survival uh, thing for me. Was either cut my costs drastically, or I wouldn't I wouldn't have stayed on the farm. I would have had to sold the farm after that major fire. So I started to focus at that stage on full ground cover, on 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 maintaining 100% ground cover, 100% of the time, and things started to go well or go better when I I, I started to do that. Um, and and uh, the grassland started to recover. Native grassland started to recover. Um, then, I guess in the um, late nineteen eighties, I'd heard of Alan Savory and Alan Savory's work he was doing with. Um, uh, um, I guess at that stage it was called time control grazing, and um, and I adopted that, or, or I trialled that and adopted that. And it certainly helped a lot in, in, in general direction. Um, I was I still hadn't solved the problem at that stage of how to crop in a more not just just simply sustainable manner, but a regenerative manner, a, a, a method that would regenerate the landscape. Um, until a friend of mine, Daryl Clough, and myself came up with uh, a, a, a just the thought of maintaining or keeping. The, the native perennial grasses on our farm while we were while we were sowing crops, so we, we we made sure we kept those perennial native grasses alive, and then started to drill uh, crops into them, crops like uh, wheat and, and oats and barley, those types of crops, um, and that was the start of, of pasture cropping. Um, and while I was sowing crops in this manner, we, we still had to maintain, I felt as though we had to maintain full ground cover, 100%, 100% ground cover. So what, I mean, you, 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 you explained well that you, you really were against the wall when your farm burned and you lost all your sheep. I mean, you, you had no money, but what, I mean, were, were there other, were there any other theories or instincts leading towards the, the, the new approach that you took? It was all instinctive because there was no one to help help me develop it, um, and uh, in fact, it was the opposite. Actually, everyone, especially scientists, especially scientists and, and agronomists, were were quite almost aggressive um, when they heard of what I was doing, and certainly there was no support there from that at all, from them at all. Um, in fact, the opposite. Uh, and so it's a bit like you hear stories of anyone doing anything new. They seem to get criticism from everyone, not encouragement, but, but criticism. Um, and so a lot of those early days, um, myself and Daryl Clough, fortunately Daryl Clough was also working with me in, in those early days. And we only had our, our, ourselves to support us, uh, like to, to just to, to bounce ideas off. Fortunately, I, I met a scientist it was Dr. Christine Jones, and in in the early nineties, um, and Christine is a is a, a rangeland ecologist and, and a soils ecologist, 
And she understood it. She visited my farm one time and she understood what I was trying to do immediately. And she ended up a, a wonderful support. And uh, Christine could always see things from a plant's point of view and what <laughs> and what what was happening under the soil. And she answered a lot of the questions that no one else was interested in answering or didn't know anyway. I mean, I'm talking about other scientists. Um, and and uh, certainly Christine's support has been invaluable over the years. So, so Colin, you know, in, in your first kind of major summary, I wrote down about eight follow-up questions. But before I get to them, I think it's important to ask you just to take us through a year on your farm. I think that's the best way to give listeners a, an idea of what you have figured out and what, what you've achieved. So I don't care what, what, could you please start at the, at the most logical time of year to start, point out what season that is for you in Australia and yeah. take us through your, your production system, if you don't mind. Yes, that, that, that would be fine to do that. Um, if we start, now, before I start on there, I need to explain. The farm here is, is, is um, the main enterprise is merino sheep, merino sheep for wool and meat. Uh, we, uh, and, and growing crops is, is more of a secondary uh, side, but an important side. Um, it, it, as opposed to uh, someone that grows crops mainly f- and, and, and livestock are a secondary thing. Now, if we start in January or even December, traditionally what, has, what was done to, to grow a crop in our December, December, January is, is, is midsummer here in Australia. Um, traditionally what is done is that we, people are either ploughing uh, soil to plant crops, or they're or they're using herbicides to kill to kill plants um, in preparation to plant a crop. What we're doing in this situation is using uh, livestock, or in specifically sheep, uh, to graze in a time-controlled manner with a, with a mob of about three thousand adult adult sheep. And using those animals in, in, in that rotation to start to prepare the, the, the paddocks to, to plant a crop into, uh, remembering that plant, crop planting time is April, May, and even into June. So in, in say, from February on, we're starting to just graze those, those areas a bit shorter uh, with that mob of, of you know, up to, up to 3,000 sheep uh, in preparation to plant the crop. Are they grazing native grasses? Is that what your yes, pasture they, is composed yes, of? Yes, yes. Now, now, these pastures are native native grasses, mostly perennial grasses. In fact, there's, there's 80, 80% native perennials in these grasslands now. Uh, the rest are, uh, are annual grasses and, and clover and, and that type of thing. Um, so we're using these animals. Now, with a mob that size... They're putting a lot of uh, um, uh, dung and urine, manure and urine, onto that so onto that paddock as well. So we're transferring nutrients onto onto that that area as well, which which um, is going to be of great help to the, the the crop that is to be planted in 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 two or three months' time. So the animals are actually rotating around the farm. Remember, we've got about 75 areas of about 30 acres each, roughly, roughly that. 
Um, but uh, so so they're rotating around the farm. Normally, we're we're trying to give at least three, maybe four months uh, rest before those animals come back to that original area again. So they're, they're going in a rotation with with the aim of of, of long recovery of these, these grass species before they're grazed again. Um, now, in preparing to plant a crop, we're just leaving those animals on there a little bit longer and usually bring them back a little bit faster onto that area um, so there's not as long a recovery. In, uh, and, and this is specifically to plant the crop. The, the goal of that is to uh, remove as much of, of the leaf area to also um, prune roots back. So you remove in competition from the, the potential crop to, to be sown and very importantly we're putting a lot of organic matter from that root material into the soil and we're laying a lot of lot of the the um, uh, dry grass as mulch onto the soil surface so we're preparing it almost like a a garden or a vegetable uh, patch or vegetable garden um, a, 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 as much litter or mulch on the soil surface as we possibly can can achieve um, now uh, when it's planting time, uh, and, and it has to be the same planting time as normally or traditionally uh, used for a particular or a specific crop, um, we, we zero tilling that that crop uh, in, into the, into that area, usually without a herbicide. If, if we have enough mulch and litter on that on those those, those paddocks that's been created by the animals laid enough material there, we generally don't have uh, uh, any weeds on it. Uh, and then drilling into that, into that, um, into that mulch of, of, of that uh, that's been created. Okay, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to interrupt so that I can confirm. You've grazed them for sure the one time. Have they been back and grazed again? Like, are you talking about after the first grazing or after the second grazing? Generally after the second grazing, yeah, I missed that that bit. After the second grazing, it needs to be mulched reasonably well. The the canopy of the grass needs to be opened up as well to prevent too much shading on on the newly emerging uh, crop that's that after it's been planted. Okay, so so that means are we now into like March April when you're planting this crop? Yeah, a- April. Yeah, depending on what we want it for, it can be March or April. Especially if we're planting a crop for uh, uh, forage for for animals. Okay, so great. Um, okay, so if you could pick it up from there, then you know what what yep. just choose a crop that you would be planting at this time and explain what you're doing. You've got you've developed a special drill planting drill, haven't you? That's right. It it is. I developed it mainly to keep my the costs down, but any zero till uh, drill is, is fine. It, it doesn't have to be anything specific, but. I, I developed my own with machinery that I had here, uh, and, and just to, just to uh, reduce costs. Um, at this time of the year, because I'm trying to to uh, uh, generate uh, stock feed to fill out uh, to, to feed animals in, in mostly our winter period. Uh, what I'm sowing now, what I've been developing now, is. Um, is a multi is multi species crops. Um, that's still pasture crop, multi species pasture crop, and still drilling these into that grassland and into those that that, that grass species. Before I, <laughs> I, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. 
what's very important in, in, in pasture cropping is we need to be sowing a crop into a, into a grass where the majority into a grassland or a pasture where the majority of those species have gone into dormancy or are going into into a natural dormancy. And in our case here, the the majority of the, the, the native grasses that we have are summer growing warm season grasses that go dormant as, as the, the weather gets colder. Um, now and and so as those species are starting to get, get uh, shut down or go into dormancy, that's the time where we're planting these these crops. The crops that I'm growing now, like, as, as I mentioned before, are multi-species crops, and they they are made up with a with the base of of, of oats, uh, and then a combination of, of as many different species as I can think of to put in there and, and that combination that I'm actually sowing at the moment is um, uh, with oats I'm putting a, a forage brassica in which is that particular one is a cross between a uh, turnip and kale um, just a normal uh, a, a normal available forage, forage brassica uh, vetch is also in that mixture um, a fast growing um, uh, annual uh, clover uh, and also a, a field pea and and uh, and and, uh, and lupin as well, or oh, and and some tillage radish. Now, so that I'm, I'm drilling that in now, and you need to remember that this is all this is sown into a grassland or a grassland that has gone, gone dormant. So you've got. At any time, you've got something actively growing. If it isn't the grassland through that summer period, it is a, 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 a mix of many species in the crop as well. Now, a lot of these ideas for the multi-species, not the pasture cropping side of it, but the multi-species actually came from um, the time I'd spent with, with, uh, with Gay Brown, who, who you would be, most, many Americans would be aware of and Canadians would be aware of, um, Gay Brown who's in North Dakota and Gail Fuller who's in in in, uh, in Kansas. Um, also some some input from from Dave Brand in Iowa. Um, they're growing multi-species crops for many reasons, um, and and soil health benefits and, and and those. Now, I've just turned this around a bit, and and multi-species crop in. In in uh, in North America is used generally to prepare uh, the soil. It's almost like a biological primer to put the main crop in, which is often corn. Here, the the the, the cover the cover crop for me, or the cover is actually the grassland itself, and I'm and the crop is is the multi species. So it's turned turned it around the other way. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't confuse everyone. No, no, I, I, I'm following you, and I'm going to provide a, a summary at the end just to make sure I have it right. But is this forage, this multi-species forage crop, um, is it for true foraging? Then, like you'll send the animals back out. You're not harvesting this stuff to feed them in their in the barns or anything like that. I, I, I imagine that that you're sending them back out to graze this down at some point. That's right. Yeah, I need to be aware that yeah, and explain to your listeners that. Uh, it's, it is different here in Australia because, because we've got a lot warmer climate, especially as you head north and into Canada. Uh, uh, 
our winters are still okay and, and, and not that cold, certainly not, not cold in, in relation to sort of the northern part of the US and into Canada. Uh, our crops will still grow through our winter period. It's more, the climate is more like, say, Kansas, that, that type of, of, of climate there, that, uh, from, from what I can, can, can understand. It's closer to the, that, the climate of, of, say, Kansas than, than, say, North Dakota, for example. Um, now, uh, yes, these, these crops are uh, they're used as a, still as a dual purpose crop. Um, they're, they're used for forage, and it's very, very good quality forage. Uh, I've found that that mix or that multi species will fatten um, animals, either sheep or cattle, very, very quickly, and, and, and it's a very healthy for the animals, a, a very healthy mixture. There's no no um, feeding issues or, or health issues on, on it at all. Um, the other great benefits of, of it is soil health of that multi-species, especially when you start to combine this with with the native uh, perennial grassland as well, in that in the, the soil uh, uh, becomes far more friable, you, you get greater depth of penetration depth with, with something like a tillage radish. With a legume in there like vetch and, and field pea, you're adding nitrogen also uh, uh, for that for that crop and a future crop as well. Um, now, what I've found, with, if we get the right species mix with oats, those broadleaf um, species will, will not tolerate as much grazing as as something like oats will. And we can graze those crops till early August and uh, and then the the oats will still make uh, will make grain and we can still harvest oats off these off these paddocks as well. So we can ha have have your cake and eat it too. We still can harvest grain and do harvest grain off these crops, oat, oat grain, and we get all this good good stock feed as well wow plus plus as you point out just the the benefits to the soil so by this point yes. if i have you right uh if you take one of these 30 acre plots that you're rotating the stock through they've yep. they've had they visited they visit the the one paddock uh twice before you plant yep. your multi-species forage they ultimately yep. visit it a third time and you still yep. have time to let some of the species like oats then go to seed and harvest the seed that's right, except what we tend to be doing is using these crops just specifically to finish uh, lambs, to fatten and finish lambs or surplus stock. So we're using them often uh, to, well, most of the time, um, not so much with, a, with, with the 3,000 sheep at this stage, but with specific uh, ones we want to fatten and, and sell. Um, and, 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 and is that is that high quality is... lamb. Is, the, is that to yep. say that that are you kind of pointing out that the for the multi-species forage crop is that the stocking rates are a bit lower? Is that is that part of why you're telling me that? Y yes, um, you, you certainly could graze all of all of the, the sheep on that. That that's certainly not a problem. It, 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 but we find we can uh, from a, from an income uh, point of view, we, we use them more specifically to fatten and finish animals. Uh, then we get far better, far better money for those animals when they're, they're, they're in because all of the animals then are, are really uh, all grass fed. No, there's no grain given to any of our animals here, so they're all grass fed uh, and grass finished. 
either on the crop or on the native grassland. Okay, so Colin, before you continue taking me through the season, I just want to, as an aside, I just want to ask you, um, what are your, if I have the term right, because I'm not a livestock producer, what is your stocking rate per acre compared to, say, I happen to know that your one or both of your brothers farms conventionally right next door to you. How do the stocking yep. rates differ? In other words, the, the numbers of animals you can graze per acre, are they different? Are you seeing benefits in that respect? Yes, I carry double the number per, per acre uh, that, than my neighbours do. And, um, and that's partly because of the way we're sowing the crops, but also the way we're grazing our native, our native grasslands as well with, with, a, with a rotation or holistically managed grazing. And, and the, this kind of information is not just you, uh, you uh, stretching you know, credulity. You've, you've had a lot of scientists visit, visit you because of your innovative practices, haven't you? That's right. It's been suggested that, and I think it's right, uh, that, that my farm, Winona, is one of the most researched farms in Australia. Um, now, um, after all this time, the scientists have eventually became interested in it um, uh, and, and now wanting to do research work on it. Like, for example, our, our main research organisation here in Australia, which is called the CSIRO, it, it has done, done work here. Um, universities have too, the Sydney University and Canberra Universities have also done, and Melbourne University as well, have all also done research work on, on my farm. So, yeah, all this is well validated, um, yes, uh, and, and including soils and soil health and carbon measurements and, and, and all of that, and soil microbial measurements as well. Right. Okay, so Colin, can you take us back to the production year then? So, You've, yep. you've now, you put this multi-species forage crop on, you've, you've grazed it, you even, in a good year, you have, you still have time to, to take a, a harvest of, of oats off of that same crop. Um, yep. Okay, then, what, then, then we must be somewhere in September, October by now, I imagine. Yes, yep. Now, need to remember, while all this is going on, while, while we've got crops in, about a quarter of the farm gets planted to crops. Now, uh, most of those are multi-species, but this summer uh, I, I grow single-species oats, like all pasture crop, all into grassland, uh, which we, we, we uh, harvest grain off as specifically for, for grain, or it can be wheat. Sometimes we grow wheat or, and cereal rye as well. But, um, so the grazing is still going on in, in the meantime. On, on all of the, the rest of the farm that we don't have, well, that, we, that, that uh, either their crops aren't in, or they we're using those crops specifically to to uh, finish and fatten animals on. Right. Um, so if we're up to September, well, September we we shear our our, um, our merino sheep here in in early September. Um, we generally cut about twenty ton of wool off them. Um, we get um, twenty thousand kilograms or whatever that is in pounds. Um, so. Uh, and that generally takes about two weeks out, out in, in September. Uh, October, we, our, our ewes are having their lambs. They're, they're lambing in, 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 in October, um, which is sort of the end of, towards the end of our spring. Uh, and then harvesting uh, our crops in, in generally in November. Right. Okay. And so, and then where does the, where does the harvesting of the native, so, so I would imagine in September, October, the native grasses come back on and, um, 
you ultimately, this is what also is so fascinating. You've, you've developed a special harvester to harvest the native grass seed, at least in some of the paddocks. Um, so, but is there first, are you also grazing that native grass before you ultimately take the, the seed harvest or do you do the seed harvest first and then set them out to graze or how does it work? Yeah, we, we, we're harvesting the the, uh, the native grass seed before they're grazed, um, and we we sometimes prepare paddock or, or generally uh, don't graze the, those areas we're wanting to harvest uh, native grass seed off. We generally uh, are not um, uh, grazing them quite as much through the year. But generally, what happens when we have a, have a, a, an oat crop or a wheat crop in in that area? We can then, uh, as soon as the crop is well, as the crop is harvested, the 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 native grass will go will will produce seed, and then we harvest native grass seed off that as well. Almost uh, within a month of harvesting the the grain off the crop, we're then harvesting native grass seed. Another thing too that I I did miss um, at the start of 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 what of describing what was happening, we're usually harvesting native grass seed in the area before we start to prepare the, 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 that area to plant the crop in. So we're off, often getting two harvests of, of, of native grass feed off those areas. And one thing I wanted to ask, Colin, it seems like some of the crops in your multi-species forage mix, um, given that you're not irrigating, um, you're really depending on on this really, I imagine, very rich mulch slash litter that preserves the moisture that allows you to grow things like certain certain brassicas that you mentioned and stuff like that. Like that was also really impressive to me when I heard that you were growing stuff like that in the system that you were dealing with. Yes, yes. Um, one of the problems, well, not problems, but one of the, the things we have to deal with in Australia is even though our rainfall appears quite good rainfall, our evaporation rate is very, very high. Our summers are long and hot, uh, and and our winters we have no, we, never snows here, so um, so we've got evaporation virtually right throughout the year. Anyway, um, so and, and most of or many of our farms in Australia are crashing because there's not enough ground cover maintained on them in, in, in either in in cropping uh, farms or grazing. Um, so it's very important uh, to maintain that, that mulch layer and little layer and then start to build soil and, and, and organic matter and then associated carbon uh, from that soil carbon. Uh, and that's certainly what's happened here. Um, and, and now we've doubled our carbon levels on the soils here in, since I've changed to these methods of, of farming and grazing. Uh, and And... Consequently, our water holding capacity on soils here have now have doubled with that. Um, things like, uh, but it's, it gets even better than that in that traditional agriculture has always depleted the landscape right from 10,000 years ago. It, 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 it was always going to deplete the landscape, well, destroy ecosystems really is what agriculture has done all around the world. And... Uh, and farming, especially ploughing, uh, to, to grow, grow crops has been very destructive. Since I've reversed this and developed a regenerative method of agriculture, not only have our soil carbon levels increased, but all of our soil nutrients have increased. And traditionally, or, well, 
as far as science goes, that uh, as far as they know, agriculture has always depleted uh, uh, soil nutrient levels. Um, And it's just been an accepted thing. And also, uh, it's just accepted that we're going to get loss of soil or soil erosion. Now, if we start to get full ground cover with a, with a, a almost a living mulch with, with with something growing there all the time, well, we can reverse that around, and and we can actually increase uh, uh, soil, soil nutrients, or, or we can improve the soil chemistry, and that's in, it, we've increased all the nutrients here by an average of 172 percent on this farm. So while we're producing all all, all that wool and growing crops. And that all of the nutrients are increasing. And Colin, do I need to ask if your farm is profitable? <laughs> it certainly, it certainly uh, is far more profitable. Yes, yes, it is. It is profitable, and it's far more profitable than it was when we when we were farming in a traditional way. And the main the, the, the main reason why is that we're, we're saving. On average, uh, $80,000 a year doing what we're doing now, now compared to what when I was farming more conventionally with, with um, I guess at the time it was still best practice agriculture, but it was a very destructive form of agriculture. So we're saving all that money to start with, and our our, our, our crop yields are are about the same as conventional agriculture. Uh, but our carrying capacity is, is, has greatly increased, uh, as in the number of livestock or the number of sheep we're running as uh, far greater. Uh, so that's, I mean, in, 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 as you pointed out, you're talking about the 80000 you you save in expenses each year. I mean, that's that's got to be a comfortable, even like a middle-class income in, in Australia's worth of savings. <laughs> that's right, yes. Uh, yes, it, it's um, made a huge difference, Um and, and certainly taken a lot of pressure off, financial pressure off, um, you know, wondering where the next next uh, dollar is coming from. Keep, keeps the fridge full of beer. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So, so Carl- I didn't mention that bit about uh, pasture cropping being developed over quite a few beers with my friend Daryl Clough. <laughs> there's, there's no end to the benefits of a, of a good brew. Um, <laughs> That's correct, Colin. I, I want to ask you. I mean, to sum it up now, and, and this is often the case when we talk about when we talk when we hear from people like you, where it's almost intimidating to to or or, or it's just awe inspiring to see what you've achieved. But um, and and it almost it seems unattainable. But I have to imagine it wasn't it wasn't you know all roses going along. There must have been failures along the way. I mean, did you did you have, were there many techniques and approaches you tried that didn't work or are there any other failures that, that happened as you figured out the system? Yep. What was surprising, the first time that Daryl Clough and I tried it, first the first year we tried it, it worked straight away. Uh, it was quite, quite um, it, it, that, that surprised us. We just expected to, uh, just produce some stock feed, but we actually first crop we grew, we got got good grain off it, uh, harvested grain. Um, but in saying that, there has been some failures along the way, in, and and that was in the development stage. Just like developing anything new or different, um, things like manipulating the grassland is, is has been uh, a real learning curve, uh, and that's why I place a lot of impo- emphasis on grazing and how it's grazed like 
for example, I tried growing growing crops into tall grass, uh, even though it was going into dormancy, but into really tall grass, and, and it didn't work anywhere near as well. And that was because there was too much shading from it. And I hadn't pruned it, really done much root pruning um, uh, and, and, and mulching with the animals on it. So yeah, there has been some failures along the way. Um, where I see... Um, because I, I, I do a lot of, um, I guess, training people now on on how to uh, use these techniques, and that's around the world I do that. Um, what I, I, I get people to do is is not just jump in, well, to anything new, and, and, and this included uh, just switch from a traditional thing straight into to anything new. It, there needs to be a transition period. There need, you need, need to be able to just move into this gradually because any transition period is financially risky. So, so it, it's very important just to, to, to ease, ease your way into it and, and, and work out what applies on your farm. Um, and so do, uh, what I recommend is to do small areas uh, when you start and, and, and to reduce the risk of, of the change. Right. So, so on that note, Colin, I, I wouldn't mind spending a few minutes talking about uh, whether this can be applied in, in, let's say, places with hard winters, and if so, yep. if so, how. So, I have some specific questions, but you must have you must have an answer right off the bat. I mean, you must have a sense of whether these principles can be effectively applied in a place like, you know, Canada. Um, yep. Is there is there a modification to the system that you've seen used and and to 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 achieve the same essential result of of no till agriculture of re, of no till regenerative regenerative agriculture? Yeah, the broad principles can be applied, providing there is whatever you're planting into is it in a dormant at a dormant stage. Now that and that that's really really it. Um, in saying that. Um, Gabe Brown, who I communicate quite often with, Gabe has been trying to work out how to fit this in in, in in North Dakota, and he's still struggling with it, in that there doesn't seem to be a big enough niche, a big, a long enough niche, where where there's a dormancy and uh, a, a long enough time to get that, that, that crop to grow and finish. Um, so it is a problem in in those types of climates, if there isn't a, long, a big enough niche, but it's certainly in saying that it's not in, in, it, it, nothing's impossible it's it's just about thinking about how how um uh, how to do it and, and 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 changing well it's all about changing our heads really and changing the way we, we approach things um and uh if you get further south in the u.s in further south I, I think uh, in, in, in some of those areas around Kansas and, and further north of there as well, I think it'll work better in those areas than it does here in Australia, in, in that when it gets cold in those areas, it shuts that your warm season grasses down very quickly, whereas our, our grasses don't shut down quite as quickly as, as, as they do in those areas. Right. Um, well, see, I, I remember asking you. I was I was so pumped up when I saw your talk in San Diego, and I, I even I, I I put up my hand and asked you to evaluate this scenario. And it's it's a bit far out there. I mean, I'm I'm. It's not just the climate I'm dealing with, which is you know, 
not a severe winter like on the Canadian prairies or the American Midwest, but it's it's a cold winter. I mean, yeah. minus we had some minus twenty Celsius this winter. Yeah. Um, but not only that, but we don't have animals on my farm, and we're much much smaller. Still, it's fun to think about how your systems could be modified. So, um, I'll ask yeah. you again for the benefit of the listeners to speculate on this scenario. We have an eight acre hay field on the farm that we normally get three cuts of hay off of, but that's with irrigation. So I have wondered yep. if, if theoretically that it, we could treat the hay field in a different way um, and perhaps just let the spring rains irrigate the hay field. Um, take, take, take a cut off of the hay field, perhaps a little earlier than we normally do. Um, so in, in, you know, late spring to early summer um, and, and then perhaps let the grass grow back a bit, but by this time it's getting very, very hot and and dry, and dry here in my climate. Um, yep. So I have wondered if I could mimic the effect of the of the stock by by using a flail mower, which is very um, feasible on a, such a small acreage, to yep. to chop up the 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 leftover grass really fine to create to mimic that kind of litter layer, that mulch layer, um, and then ultimately just try planting. S- you know, perhaps just as an example, broccoli or kale into that, into that litter, um, yep. and seeing what results we, I mean, we do, we could irrigate it, although that would just encourage the grass to come back. But I'm wondering, like, yep. is that getting too far out there or, or do you, do you, do you see it? Do you think it's worth experimenting like that? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's quite possible. Um, the, that hay area is, is, is grass, grass, is it grass species? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, right now it's also got some clover and some, and some alfalfa, but it's also got a few grass species in it. I don't know if I'd call it the native. I mean, we irrigate every year. So I, I think the native could be encouraged to come back or could be replanted though. Yes. Okay. Um, I think it's worth trying, um, especially if there's a, if there's enough time to get things growing, um, like, yeah. Especially something something like a brassica, like kale or, or, or those species, because they're more tolerant of cold. And I have found that they are happier growing amongst other grass species than, say, something like another grass type crop like wheat or oats or barley. They're more compatible with with, with um, other grass species uh, like a, a brassica is than than a, than a cereal crop. Right. Uh, if if you know what I mean, I think it's related to the different root systems mm-hmm. uh, or the different types of plants to start with. So they're more likely to work than, than most other things, like the kale or the brassica type species. And uh, Colin, I just want to go back to kind of something you a couple things you said earlier. One is that you you said you experienced a lot of doubt from others from from from. Main, you know, other conventional farmers from even from ag scientists when you started talking about and then trying to implement these ideas. And um, yep. that really struck a chord for me just because, you know, mainstream agricultural science has been responsible for some incredible uh, breakthroughs in terms of food production. Um, but there really does seem to be, a, I guess I would call it an arrogance to to mainstream science that people like you encounter that can, uh, it sounds like you were forced to just do it anyway, but, but I I imagine it must be responsible for really 
discouraging others sometimes who who think they're onto something but but who face a bunch of people telling them that, that they're crazy yes um, it is yeah yes i've been called a lunatic more than once but that's okay uh, when they're calling you a lunatic you know you're just about on the right on the right track <laughs> uh, so, um yeah, fortunately, I had no choice, and so I had to had to take it through. Uh, I, I was forced to change uh, with, with financially with, with, uh, from that that fire we had. Um, the main critics have have been been scientists. Um, fellow farmers have generally been okay. Well, I mean, so, some of the thinking farmers have been very quick to adopt it because they they know they know straight away if, if it's going to work or not. Um, and they'll often often uh, try, but the scientists seem to. Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's just a uh, an arrogance, or arrogance ego, or professional jealousy type thing, uh, or what it is with them, or whether we have a unique uh, band of scientists in Australia that are more that way or not. I don't know, um, but generally there wasn't any uh, very well virtually no support uh from farmers only uh, sorry sorry scientists only criticism early days uh now there's a lot more support than there was but i i think it's quite quite common with change um you know, you've only got to get have a look at what with, with charles darwin <laughs> 200 years ago that the criticism he copped um when he was developing or, or sort of discovering a, a lot of his his things and and so I, I think it's fairly normal, and and, I, and, and if people develop think something new or different, they need to just realise that they're going to cop a bit of criticism. It's just it's so weird because like there's a fine line between persevering because you know you you really think you're onto something, and and there's a fine line between that and actually being a bit of a fool. Like sometimes they're right when they yeah. tell you it's crazy, and I know that yeah. well because I started farming only about eight years ago, and let me tell you, I've done many many. Foolish things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, that happens. Um, uh, it one of the advantages, I guess, when I when I talk to groups of, of farmers, what I try to get them to do is, is is to actually form a group within an area of you know of, of like-minded farmers to to as a support group, so that. Yeah, that when they start doing things, not only have they got a support base that they're not an idiot, one idiot on their own, they've actually got a group of idiots together, <laughs> <laughs> and at least they've got each other to to bounce ideas off and 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 and, um, uh, and discuss their their failures and their good things that have happened. Uh, and it's certainly a lot easier if you've got a few other people around that are, that are doing are doing similar things. Um, that I think is the better way to create create change, rather than trying to do it on your own. Uh, you, you, you're certainly um, uh, going a lot further forward and and, uh, and, and faster with, with a group of people. Right. Well, it's it's good advice, and um, that's kind of how I'd like to to end this conversation. I'm just gonna we can step if you want. We can step away from the topic at hand, but. Um, I would just love to, I mean, you, you, you're obviously very, very experienced with rotational grazing and I know I'll have some listeners who are at various stages of, of using rotational grazing and this is an open-ended question, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice or tips for those who are struggling with it. Are there any 
key pieces of advice you have for those who, who want to do more rotational grazing on their farm? Yep. The main thing really is make sure that the plants of uh, perennial plants are fully recovered before they're grazed again. You yeah, can't, can't express that enough. Um, it, like if in a rotation, uh, in, in that rotation, it's so critically important to, to, for have those plants fully recovered. Um, don't graze them before they're fully recovered. Otherwise, you'll start to just wind everything backwards. Uh, and, and a lot of that's in the planning uh, of, of um, either obviously not carrying any more animals than your farm will carry, um, but but also having, um, I guess, small enough areas and, and uh, for the numbers of animals that you're carrying. But that, that really is the main thing. Um, and and just, just make sure there's a long enough recovery uh, for the type of plant you've got. There's no answer on how much recovery that you should have um, because it's different on different different plant species and in different different areas around the planet. Um, but but the plants will tell you whether they're recovered or not. They need to be fully recovered, but not not necessarily uh, going to seed. And Colin, is there how can people? Is there anything you'd like to promote? I mean, are there are there any ways that you um, you interact with the public? Do you have a website? Uh, anything like that that people should know about if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, um, my my website and people can contact me anyway. My, my well, my my email address is is Colin C O L I N at Winona W I N O N A dot net dot au. So they they can email me if they wish. Um, my website, um, I've just been upgrading it. I think it's finished. Um, uh, is is um, Winona W I N O N A dot net dot au is is my website. Okay. Well, Colin Sykes, I just I can't thank you enough for for making the time to talk to me. I think what you're doing is is so impressive and inspiring, and uh, I'm I just appreciate that you took some time to tell us about it today. Oh, it's a pleasure. No problems at all. Colin, we're done. Thank you. Um, that was great. Um, we're done unless unless there's something you really think I left out that you want to talk about. But other than that, we're we're done. Yeah, no, not really. I, I guess probably what I didn't place enough importance on was um uh is is um we need to have farming systems that are regenerative uh not just simply sustainable we need to regenerate our landscape and and that needs to be applied all over the planet um and that's probably the um uh you know the, the main thing you know it doesn't really matter how which which method of agriculture we use as long as, as it regenerates our landscapes and our farms do you share the opinion of permaculturalists like Alan Savory who argue that animals are essential to that? Or do you think it can be done without animals? I don't think it can be done long-term without animals um, because um, animals do a lot more than just eat grass in that they, they cycle nutrients. They're part of the process. Um, and and they, they also, are, with a mulch, they're also... You know, putting that mulch layer onto the soil surface then to start driving soil health and, 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 and that type of thing, breaking down that material. Um, so I think animals are a very important part of it. I'd, I'd fully agree with Alan on that one. Uh, and, and it's really simple. I mean, it, a lot of this is very simple, really. We just need to mimic how nature did it in the first place, really. And animals were always a component of that. 
Um, Colin, thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, thanks to Colin for that great interview. I hope you enjoyed it, folks. And I hope you'll consider getting in touch, either just to give me some feedback about the podcast, editor at theruminant.ca, or to make a, uh, a submission of some kind. You can contact me at the email or at Ruminant Blog on Twitter or at my uh, cell phone number 250-767-6636. You can send me a text that way. Or I have a Skype number, 310-734-8426. And that's if you want to if you want to line up uh, a chance to just record a short piece of audio uh, in which you talk about something innovative or cool you're doing on your farm or in your garden that you want to tell your colleagues about i'd love to hear from you have a great week trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.